This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 16 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today is Part 3 in our series on J.J. Abrams as a film director, where we are going to be looking at his third movie, Super 8. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we're joined by John from Words with Nerds. How's it going, John? It's going great. Thank you for uh, inviting me back. Oh, always. It's, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you here. So That's a why and you know it. <laughs> Four out of five times, it's a pleasure to have you here. Those are pretty good odds. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> no, no, seriously, thank you very much. We do appreciate it. So, before we get into Super 8 itself, uh, John, what are your thoughts on J.J. Abrams in, in general? In general, I think that he's a talented lad with uh, a real knack for getting solid performances out of actors that appear in movies where you're not used to getting uh, the level of emotional depth from their performances that, uh, that come across. Like, you know, um, going through everything, whatever other flaws there are, he is, I would label him an actor's director because you know that you're going to get good performances out of the actors, the best that they can give you in the circumstances. So I know that I'm always going to enjoy it from that standpoint. And I know that I enjoy his pacing and his edit. You know, his eye is good with a couple of exceptions of things that he does. But um, so he's not perfect. But if his name's on something, it's enough to get me interested to go see it. Fair enough. And then what about uh, his two Star Trek movies? Did you enjoy those? Um, I enjoyed the not boot in, uh, in 2009. I, I found it fresh and different and a, a good take, again, despite any uh, limitations that there... You know, the, there were a couple of things where I was like, eh, but it was, it, it was rebuilding something, so I was looked the other way on a couple of things. Into Darkness completely lost me in the third act. I don't think that I'm unique in saying that at all. Uh, I, I'm not special for making that observation. Um, okay. But I, I really you felt might be special it. in that you identify where that third act begins. Uh, yeah, you know it's a, that's an open debate point, no doubt, no doubt. Um, yeah, I, I, but like Into Darkness, it, it, it was one of those things where I wanted to like it. I really wanted to like it, and even past the first point where I had the, the cringe where I went, oh, I wish they hadn't done that. I, w- I was still willing to give it a shot and I, he, I, he did well enough with it to power it to the point where I gave it every last possible opportunity uh, and until by the end I was so done with it that I just wanted to just leave the theater and not even say anything to the people I saw it with. It was just like I'm I don't want to talk about this right now. All right. So, so a split decision in terms of his Star Trek work. That's yeah. fair enough. Okay. So, so this movie is, is another split of his Star Trek work. And that is the thing that he did uh, in between the two movies and, and the thing that he did directly in between the two movies that came out in 2011, um, which is exactly two years uh, before into Darkness and two years after Star Trek 09. So uh, it, it was the thing that a lot of filmmakers do, who, uh, you know, filmmakers who are the, the key holders of franchises, who, who, who feel obligated to complete 
trilogies, or maybe not, and and other things like that. Like Christopher Nolan, you know, in between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, he made The Prestige, and in between. And just to destroy this example, I'm also use Michael Bay. Michael Bay is the exception. <laughs> who you know, he uh, aside from Pain and Gain, he just makes Transformers movies exclusively these days. Mm-hmm. But you know, yeah, Nolan, you know, and he also did Inception between Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, and I can kind of see that that thing because it's like these guys are sort of known for being auteurs in a sense prior to coming onto these franchises and they don't want to do just Batman movies even though they do want to do Batman movies you know what I mean yeah so so it makes sense that you know yes he does want to do Star Trek 2 12 13 whatever you want to call it 12 into darkness but super Star Trek 2 turbo there you go <laughs> but before he does that he wants to do his own thing. And this is, in in a lot of ways, his most own thing in terms of uh, his movies. His most own thing. His most own thing, because uh, that would really look good on a T-shirt. It's not a <laughs> it's not a, a sequel, it's not a reboot, and it's something which he wrote all by himself. So, uh-huh. uh, in a lot of ways, this is this is kind of uh, an original work. In a lot of ways, maybe not so much. Max, would you want to give sort of a synopsis or, or plot breakdown of Super 8? Of Super 8? It's basically what would happen to E.T. if E.T. was captured by Keys at the beginning of the movie and then was, like, captive for a little while and broke out and started doing all kinds of crazy stuff because he was trying to get home. Yeah. The end. Uh, <laughs> and if they gave E.T. access to some, like, steroids, you know. Well, I assume that he would just, you know gradually grow. I mean he was a little guy he was he didn't spend a lot of time on that. he had enough time you know he was bulked up you know did some pull-ups in the forest and stuff yeah maybe he was maybe he was from like a heavy world and that's why he was so short to begin with and then on our world he yeah. bloomed under under our yellow sun he would be phrase <laughs> also for some reason invisible sometimes <laughs> Sometimes. At, Sometimes. At the time at the time that this movie came out, uh Max and I were working at sister theaters and we had both screened the movie simultaneously in two different complexes. And shortly after we had the movie stopwatches and everything. Yeah. And shor- shortly after the movie ended, I got a I got a text from Max, which I think is probably the only text I've ever received from Max, in which he said, Cloverfield phone home. Which, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! Sure, I am so good at funny. Yeah, I, I mean, like it was that. a joke that pretty much <laughs> everyone had already said, you know. But that was okay. I, I, I know that you don't go on the internet, so you, you thought it was original. So you got you get an A for effort there. Max. I don't. That's not that I'm not on the internet. So I don't go to movie websites because movies are boring. Whatever. Anyway, um, so so yeah, and, and and in a lot of ways, I think it is Cloverfield phone home in in a sense. You know, it, it's definitely. Uh, um, supposed to be sort of of that that style of filmmaking that that Spielberg seventies era style, and you know the story is basically about these kids who are making a Super Eight film, a zombie movie, mm-hmm. on on a Super Eight camera, and they end up photographing accidentally a train crash in which massive destruction occurs and uh, an unknown creature escapes. And then weird things start happening in the town, and uh, it basically goes from there, and and what's sort of revealed over the course of of the movie, spoilers, I guess, not really, is that, you know, there is an alien which has been captured by the government, and he's trying to get home. And the the government is trying to stop him from getting home. Mm-hmm. And and the entire movie is told from the perspective of these, you know, 12 or 13-year-old kids who are well, basically trying to, I don't know, survive at, at the well, same time. They're, they're, as, being, they're being lovable little scamps, you know, yeah. covering up the, the secret, uh, you know, they're, they're the holders of the secret. It's you also... Know, if, if only they told the parents ahead of time right. uh, and told them what they saw at the train crash site... Everybody still would have been powerless before the might of the U.S. military to quarantine their town, but <laughs> people true. would have known beforehand. That's true. Um, it, yeah. You know, it's also locked into that sort of like Spielberg mindset of like the the giant thing. Also, is rather significantly about like a, a family with yeah. problems. Yeah, like there's a divorce subplot in several Spielberg movies, which mm-hmm. apparently Abrams just thought. I guess I got to do a divorce subplot in order to make this fit. 
Yeah, and there's like a, a single parent thing going on. Yeah. And, yeah. So but that's the, the yeah, backdrop I, to the, the story. That's I think I think it's got the the obviously the the movie is done in the style of Spielberg. Uh, you know the, those older '70s movies, but the ending is definitely informed by later Spielberg, the guy who likes to pull his punches. Uh, it, it, you know, would Jaws end with you know the the shark being set free? You know, it's sort of that. I think it first reared its head in um, Lost World, where like the monster can't be a monster anymore by the end of it. You know, it's just misunderstood and it just wants to get home. And it's like the thing's eaten half the town for God's sake. You know, it's okay maybe to to just have it be a monster movie by the end instead of instead of having you know E. T. build his ship and go home and everybody say, "Oh shucks, well you know he ate a few people, but that's all right." You know, like ugh. It, I don't know. I, I, I feel that it takes some of the best aspects, what made us fall in love with that, that Spielberg mentality uh, back when he was fresh. But then at the end, I definitely felt like I'd been cheated like a modern Spielberg action movie where okay. the ending was just just not satisfying in the context of the entire plot. So, so on the whole, um, you, you thought it was okay or, or what? I, I, mean, I absolutely loved it up until the reveal of the creature in the caves. I thought mm-hmm. that it was far more interesting. It was a far more interesting movie until it hit this point where he felt he had... It, it really felt like once it hit that point that he had written himself into a corner and couldn't find a way out. And didn't go to somebody and say, help me out of this. What do I need to change before I commit this to film? And I think that this would have been, and I, I think you see it, in my opinion, you see it echoed in, in, in Into Darkness, where he writes himself into a corner, or the writers in that case wrote him into a corner. And nobody stopped and said, you know what? Let's, let's reconsider this one thing here and turn it around. Let's find some way to make this work better. And I, I think that's definitely evident in Super 8. I, again, I don't think that I'm unique in that, you know, I, I don't think I have any sort of like special insight. Anecdotally, there are uh, plenty of people I know where they started disliking it earlier in the film. But for me, it's very specifically at that, re- at that reveal in the caves is the point where the movie ends for me. And the rest of it is loose. It, it just doesn't feel right. Well, I mean that's interesting. I you know, I I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, I I I don't necessarily agree with uh your problems with the way that the the monster is is treated at the end of the movie either. I think they did a a good job of setting up that he is, you know, sort of an innocent victim in a sense and and uh, I think that that kind of um what do you mean? Well, yeah. like that he he's I don't he's, think, I don't he's think. an alien just trying to get home and he's scared. Well, it, but it, it I, I'm yeah, sorry. sorry. I, no, I'm just. Yeah. I was I, like, I don't like you're you're addressing like something I don't think he actually said. I think you're, what he's saying is that that's a stupid reveal. Not well, like it's it's wrong, but like that's not interesting, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, but I but I also that, like, I, I I do. My, Mike, you're right. You are keying on something I'm saying. Where the, if this creature is intelligent enough to put together a ship capable, you know, basically like go to a scrapyard and put together a ship. With his, you know, with the magic cubes and everything that that gets him off into space. This is obviously a higher level of intellect. You know, this is this is. I mean, may, maybe I missed the point. I mean, maybe it's truly horrifying because maybe I'm informed by the Star Trek mindset of once people achieve, you know, interstellar travel, there's going to be a fair amount of restraint that goes along with their intellect. Like, the big creature that can travel across the stars, that can make his own ship. It's not like a Rancor came over in a ship and, like, got out and started eating people. This is the actual, like, captain of the ship. And so I understand he's been wronged. He needs to get home. But eating the town is the part that really rubs me raw. Because it's if this is a, a higher intellect, you know, have it live just on, like, the wildlife. Like, it's been eating the bears and the dogs and stuff like that. But instead, it's, you know, it's the people. And that, I, I would think that the creature, I don't know. 
I, I like even if somebody wronged me, per, like I go into a bad part of town and somebody wronged me, I'm not going to view everybody in that city as awful. And I would think that somebody intelligent enough to travel the stars would you know could contextualize something and say, you know what, these people are bad, so I'll eat the military people because they're jerks. But I'm going to leave these lowly townsfolk alone. Is well, he actually eating them? Hold on. There are, there are many different levels of this. For one thing, there's an argument that, like, you know, in order, when, you, when you travel into interstellar space and you explore the galaxy, uh, you will you exercise restraint. Well, that's actually a, a point of view that um, has alternative positions. I mean, like, it's fairly easy to say uh, we could totally get into interstellar travel without being particularly moral. Uh, and just because we have the ability to travel from planet to planet doesn't mean that we do so nicely. It is totally possible. The, the Star Trek future is a is is a proposition that if we get this good as people, as beings, as societies, then we will be able to basically do almost anything. And the alternative is, like, honestly, give Will and Yutani enough time and they will get us to other planets, no matter how awful they are. And there's no argument that the creature in Super 8 is either one member of either of those camps. But what the indication is to me is that whatever he was when he arrived, um, he's been through some sort of psychotic break. I, mean, I think that's definitely... Okay, that's, that's fair. Okay. I, I, I can see that, sure. Like, he's basically been waterboarded for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Right, so he's just in, inordinately pissed. Yes. Okay. He's still got his higher intellect. It's still there. It's just he's on a hair trigger. Okay. And also, also, I mean, I think it's kind of partially what you're saying, where, you know, you're like, uh, you know, oh, well, this, this guy has destroyed the town. So, you know, I know that he's a, a higher, you know, intelligence or whatever, but enough's enough. You know, maybe we should just take him out before he does any more damage. I think that he's probably he probably has that same mindset where it's like I've been at Area 51 for like the past 50 years. You know, I got to meet you know Will Smith that one time, which was cool. But aside <laughs> from that, it's Could been be 40, right? it's be been 40. pretty lame. Um, I don't know. They say oh I, oh yeah because it takes place in 1979, so it, w- it wouldn't have been that much time. I think it was he he, he crashed in like. Do they say it was 48 or 49 or 49 or not? I don't know. Anyway, 51, I don't know. Whatever it was. Anyway, he's been there for a few decades. Yeah. And um, He's been there for a long time, and they, they're scientists. You know, they have keys on their belts. They're crazy people. They do horrible things to them. Right. And, and I see this as being his, uh, his chance to get away. And he's pretty much just going to run and whatever gets in his path it doesn't really stand a chance and he's just like screw it i'm out guys you know and and it, there there is even that whole thing where he does sort of perceive us as all being evil and it's not until you know he he mind melds with the the main kid that he gets the the perspective that the kid you know actually stops and talks to him and says hey look we're not all jerks those guys are jerks most of us are just trying to, to do our thing, and we don't mean you any harm, and, and you can leave, and, you know, we best of luck to you, you know? And it's at that point where he's like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I was kind of being a jerk. You know, maybe I should just, you know, get out of here and well, not... Well, now that we've resolved the, the, the whether or not this creature should stand trial because he's mentally incompetent or not, now that that's been resolved, I think we can... Is that? Who cares, man? <laughs> no, you, no, I like the thing is, I, I enjoy this because this is honestly, maybe it's a limitation of my vision. Maybe I, I was coming into it wrong, even with the, the rewatch for this. Like that so informed my opinion of the ending that I'm willing to concede that I didn't, I didn't look, I'll blame Abrams and I'll say he didn't successfully communicate to me as an audience member. But yeah. I, you know, but for me, you know, looking at it that way, yeah, okay. Okay, I guess maybe I am being a little, I mean, maybe I needed to walk a mile in the monster's shoes <laughs> and needed to understand a little bit better where he was coming from. Shame well, on me. <laughs> well, Mike and I have been through this argument before about whether or not a thing required, like if, if a required reading list is somehow a, a, appropriate for a, a work of art. And because I think everything actually does have a required reading list in a sense, it's okay to blame yeah. the audience if they don't get it. It's also okay to blame the creator if they didn't do anything worth getting. 
And I think yeah. the problem with Super 8 is that once you get it, it doesn't really make it better. Okay, so, so what were your thoughts on it then, Max? Did you like it? This is probably the only J.J. Abrams movie that I did not want to leave at any point. Like, most of them, ha- like, after about 40 minutes, I'm unbelievably bored. And I want to watch almost anything else. Watching Star Trek 2009, halfway in, I was just like, I don't want to be watching this. This is really not going anywhere. And uh, Mission Impossible 3, probably one of the one of the most boring movies that I've seen. Like, modern boring. Not bad. Boring. And Super 8, it wasn't boring. And I think largely that might not be a positive thing, but it was... It was something about it that was interesting, was worth like thinking about while watching the movie. And when it was over, I said, you know, honestly, he 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 opened up the box and he had something in there, and it wasn't particularly exciting. But I mean, at least there was something. That's nice. And I think that part of the problem with his movies in general is that when he opens the box, that's what he's got. He's got big ET with anger issues. Well, I mean, in terms of uh, the mystery box element to this and, and him opening up the box and having something inside, to me, that almost uh, made it worse. Not the fact that he revealed what was inside, but the fact that he was, decided... Was using the box for That he was using context. the box in this context. Because in mm-hmm. his other mystery box uh, endeavors, I- I'm very intrigued by the mystery and... Um, it's, it doesn't really necessarily matter what's in the box because, uh, you know, the question what's in the box is what's intriguing about it to me. Mm-hmm. But in, in this case, the whole time I was watching the movie, first time through, I kept on thinking, what's in the box? What's in the box? And then when he showed me what's in the box, I was like, yeah. Okay, fine. I mean, I guess I kind of just assumed that's what was in the box, and you're not really giving me anything interesting. And because of that, while I did enjoy the movie the first time through, I definitely thought it was his worst movie, and I still think it's his worst movie. But watching it this time, I wasn't concerned with trying to figure out what was in the box. Instead, I was able to focus on the character driven part of the story which to me is where this movie excels yeah uh and by not worrying about the monster stuff i was actually kind of always disappointed when it went to the monster stuff because i was like i don't care also some of it just does not make sense yeah there are serious like logical problems with some of the monster scenes yeah but at least homer simpson's in there is it is it homer simpson dan castellaneta is the uh used car salesman Interesting. He yeah. he's uh, he he went to our high school. Yeah. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> the character stuff, the the kids, the the family problems in this what must be Southern California it's town. Ohio. It's look, looks. Like it it, it looks like Southern California, yeah, but I wonder looks, how much of that has to do with it, no, our perceptions of Southern California based on Spielberg movies. From no, I, I think that they're exactly the same thing. I mean, the uh-huh. whole point is that he's doing Spielberg here. Yeah. Like. It's this is a, this is a Spielberg cover band, yeah, in a really weird way. So it doesn't matter where he said it; it's Southern California. Okay, so then let's let's talk about um, the style and everything. And, but that's and what actually works in this. Is what is like the, the the reality of this place? He can he actually effectively created a, an environment that was believable, that's which is true. lovely because he, outside of this. He hasn't. Well, I, I'm not sure I, hmm. I agree with that, but I mean, this I mean, definitely Star Trek did Man, feel. Do you really believe that it takes place at an actual place? Sure, I, I <laughs> okay, do. Yeah. Fine. No, I'll, I'll <laughs> give him in the 2009 one. I, yeah, but yeah. but this here, yeah, I mean, I really did feel like like he captured the the essence of 1979. And uh, remember it, those days? There were some. Yes, shots I do. Fetal. <laughs> Oh no! I was I was conscious for them, my friend. Yeah. I I remember 1979. I was I was a wee lad, very very young, but yeah, I remember 79. A great and I actually I actually commend him for not relying on some of the more. I think that if we're talking about creation of the world, like he didn't 
lean on what so many other filmmakers have have leaned on in putting in the cheap um, <laughs> the the cheap moments of having to stay on Walter Cronkite a little bit too long when he walks by the TV or so, like he's just on yeah and it's, it, it's just Walter Cronkite there and it's and nobody's saying hey look at the new Frosted Flakes box or anything like that everything is delivered in the proper context it almost uh, felt like yeah. it was made in 1979 yeah it, it feel it, and that's yeah I I definitely believed in this town and I, it was because this like he he definitely made a place that felt familiar i mean because you know 79 bled into 80 and 81 and all of those you know so this aesthetic was there for a little bit longer and um it definitely is authentic like the getting the houses right the the popular floor plans of everything uh you know like bunk bed like everything down to the types of beds people's you know people were sleeping in in their rooms and the way they decorate color palettes uh yeah, oh, yeah. God. What, what what's with that orange? Thank God that's gone. But there, there, it'll come back. <laughs> There's an interesting thing too, and just the way that it was shot and everything like that. It had this almost pseudo documentary feel to it, in the same way that things like ET did, where it's like the it was more the, the interaction between the actors more than anything. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, a certain almost Altman esque quality which lent oh. to a, a certain feeling of realism in, in some scenes. And I, I was really like kind of thinking like the seventies were really the first time that movies felt truly authentic. Like when you go back and watch movies now, Fresh obviously, obviously there's exceptions. We just talked about Robert drew on our other show and, yeah. you know, he obviously had a huge influence on, you know, cinema verite. Uh, yeah. Like it, 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 it didn't get big. Until around this time, yeah, yeah. I, but I think it was, I think it was really people like Spielberg who was like, "This is how we do this in a big budget action movie." Well, and, that that little club well, of Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola, mm-hmm, those guys, uh, Scorsese, and their, their clubhouse, Scorsese, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. They're no girls allowed clubhouse. <laughs> they 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 spent a lot of time watching like French New Wave stuff, and they learned some lessons there. And she, at some point, somebody came in there and was like, "Cinema verite." And that's what De Palma was like. Got it. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, so I mean, I don't know. That, that was just interesting. But um, how how does this style, would you say, compare to his other movies? Because here's here's one little thing which which I found to be interesting is um, when this movie was coming out, and Steven Spielberg produced it, and he was talking about how. Um, you know, Abrams prior to this had directed Mission Impossible three and Star Trek, and he said, you know, in in a lot of ways, this is Abrams's first movie because he it's it's his first original concept. He wrote it and, and directed it himself, and you know, the other two being sequels or re- reboots of of television series. It it, it how many kind times of, are we going to call J J Abrams' project the first time he did blank? I, he's done a lot of there's a lot of first times for him you know yeah. sure but but uh also not really there's no beach landing moment here <laughs> he was there for a while well i mean he it, was there it, six it weeks well, before d-day and he had a camp but that's what i'm saying that's he already what i'm had saying tickets in a lot of ways i think that this is one of his least original works because it feels like he is just trying to while it's not a, a sequel to a specific franchise or anything like that it sure? feels like it is a sequel to spielberg's career you know what i mean it, it could be though considered maybe a cloverfield prequel i guess it could in a sense you know may, maybe maybe in cloverfield you know the the creature's wife is really mad about what happened and came back and wrecked new york that's there a possibility. I mean, you know, it does take place in the same universe with yeah. the whole slusho connection and everything. Exactly. But but how how do you feel uh, this this stacks up to his other works stylistically? I, in in particular, next to uh, Star Trek, which you know this movie fell in between the two. I think that uh, you're right on hitting on the interaction of the characters because that even from the first viewing was really what really made it come alive for me and made me care up to the point where I stopped caring. And especially the way he constructed the scene of, you know, watching the, 
the film of his mom and I mean even the the scene where where she is done up like the zombie and she keeps coming and then you know he he has that you know sort of heart stopping moment of you know exactly how a little uh, exactly how a boy would react if the girl he was attracted to came up and did something like that mm-hmm. you know would, like that frozen hype, half hyperventilating sort of thing um i think that you can see he refines his communication with the actors i think between the star trek you know from star trek 2009 to this especially working with kids you can see him somehow connect with them on a better level uh, like he, he really, the way that in, you know, cause you mentioned Nolan earlier, the way that inception, you can see how Nolan is really stretching the limits of what he is able to stage technically between dark Knight and dark Knight rises and how, you know, it's a stepping stone up to, you know, the type of stuff he wants to stage for action sequences with this. I could see very much Abrams maturing in terms of getting those performances out of actors. I mm-hmm. also see him having a moment, especially because of the film's success. What's unfortunate is, and I know it's, it's sort of tired to do this, but the lens flare thing. I think that because of this film's success, this is where the lens flares um, cement themselves. Because in 2009 with Star Trek, it was a cute affectation. It was sort of, I, I bought into it where this was, that was his way of making it seem a little less perfect. Uh, in this, though, the lens flares really come into play. Um, annoyingly, like the first time it really gets annoying is when the sheriff is fueling up at the Kelvin gas station. And the little part of the bottom part of the screen, like it drove me insane, especially on the rewatch. The way that like it, it, it framed like it was just like it was not necessary. And um, he, he keeps it through. Uh, the movie, and I think that because of the movie's success and because of the accolades and because nobody said at this point, hey, you might want to rethink the lens flares a little bit, I think that he winds up going into into darkness and really going overboard with them. And even people that liked Into Darkness are, you know, they're willing to concede that the lens flares were, he conceded that the lens flares were overboard. And I think that that, is unfortunate. I think that also there are a couple of moments where the sense of time gets a little bit lost um, in terms of, okay, this scene's at night, and then so is this the following morning, or is this going on concurrently? Like, there are a couple of points where it gets a little jumbled in the first part of the film. As far as the lens flares are concerned, you know, I, I did not have a problem with them here. I mean, like the thing that you're talking about at the gas station, I was like, oh, my God, that's so great. Because for one thing, I love lens flares, but also that to me is very much um, a, a product of that era of filmmaking, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. And you see it a lot in um, Spielberg movies and, and you for, know, John for, McTiernan movies. For and, a very long time, I considered the anamorphic lens flare with blue streaks of light yes. to be the Spielberg thing. It, 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 to really? me, it, it, was always, it was always the big budget thing. I it was always a, the, the, you're watching a, a, a big budget summer blockbuster. When, when, when Star Trek 2009 came out, I made a joke to somebody at some point that uh, that J.J. Abrams got all of his lens flares from Close Encounters surplus. Yeah. That they just didn't use them all, and he just bought them at some sort of, maybe a garage <laughs> sale or something. Somewhere in Southern California, probably where the I- E.T. house was. But, like, I never cared about the lens flares. But it did remind me that back in the first episode of Alias, there's an anamorphic mm-hmm. lens flare in a four by three show. Oh, sixteen by nine. But no, still. it was it was it was on the four by three format. They had oh, anamorphic okay. lens flares in all the formats, even the full frame version. It's absolutely crazy. And then I read about like why that is there, why they did this anamorphic lens, because it it was an intentional thing. It yeah. was it was arbitrarily placed in there. In order to establish this thing, and that suddenly seemed so insane to me that you would go through the effort of adding a lens flare that really does attract attention. And and the thing was, I was talking about the lens flare in the first season, yeah. of, in the first episode no, of Alien. I remember when you told me about that, and I was like, "You are wrong." 
there's no way that that's true. Yeah, and and it, then I saw it, and I'm like, oh, you're and, right. And you know what? It is a crazy thing to do, but, but it's, it's cool. also the most interesting thing All in right. the first episode of Aliens. All right, you know what? But whatever. I, I do it's, love... It is the prettiest thing in the Star Trek movies. It is really pretty in Super 8. And the problem that I have with it is that the reason people think it's distracting is because it is. See, because I, the rest of it is but, not compelling enough. Y- you know what though? I, I okay. That that's in, a, that's an interesting argument in and of itself. I, I, I but Super Eight I think actually is almost compelling enough, like that it is distracting theoretically. Lens lens flares for me were always the mark of sort of like a technological limitation. Like I you know, there because there were certain things as well where uh you know, where they would film something and there would be I, I don't know, like blinds or or certain lighting effects where it would it would stutter like it would make my eyes hurt uh in in the background and lens flares for me were always seemed like just this weird unavoidable um thing like you know a car's headlights approaching at night in a movie and for me for me it always took me out of the movie so maybe i i'm just always um predisposed toward not loving them but i think no i think i think you're like that's not you're not wrong. I mean, that's true. That there was there was an actual like arc to it. I mean, it's the same thing with any sort of technological like adaptation. Anytime there is an artifact of a thing, at first it is avoided, then it is embraced, and then it just becomes part of the tapestry, and then nobody cares about it anymore. Lens flares hit that point of nobody cares about them anymore about ten years ago, and J.J. Abrams just used them enough to make them noticeable again. Yeah, yeah and and I mean, to me, I, I always I always love them, and they always signal that specific time period because that's when people are shooting anamorphic and that's, that's when, when the lenses couldn't i mean after a while like in the, i think the mid 90s and that's they, when they were fully embraced for yeah, the first time they, they like created, really embraced yeah in like the mid 90s they created anamorphic lenses which could you know greatly reduce the amount of lens flares and that was disappointing and, and a bunch of other guys made lenses that would arbitrarily enhance them <laughs> yeah right for and, any situation and, and i just i just always loved that and and i love it in this movie and to me the lens flares in this movie are very different from the lens flares in Star Trek because they are all very much of that that sort of time and style. They whereas, are close encounters. Yeah, they, where, are, they are dead on close encounters. Whereas in flares. Star Trek, they're much more colorful and much more sort of deliberate. And and here they do seem like sort of a product of the of the um, the it's limitations kind of, of so, the equipment. So, weird. so maybe that's maybe that's why nobody called it out. You know, because since it's the whole movie reads as an homage to the the yeah. movies we all watched mm-hmm. growing up. So right. maybe that's why nobody calls them out. I mean, I focusing on the lens flares is is why I I look at that scene, you know, with, with the the sheriff and I'm like, "Oh, I can't believe, you know, that that happened because I know he did it on purpose." Mm-hmm. Whereas the first time I watched it, I would I didn't have that reaction to the lens flares because it like to me, it almost plays as if that it makes it more authentic since it's supposed to play like a, an old Spielberg movie. But maybe that's why nobody called him out on it, and maybe that's why it got overboard in Into Darkness is because he was able to contextualize the overuse of them here, and he didn't understand that it, it only worked here because of what he was trying to achieve. Because I... Like, I, I understand he wrote it. I understand this is, you know, oh, two ideas that he had that he, mel- he melded together into an even better idea and, you know, all, all that sort of thing. But, <laughs> you know, th- this really feels like somebody who sat down and said, I want to make a Spielberg movie. And, oh, yeah. you know, oh, I don't think there's he, any way around that. He didn't sit down. He said that on stage at Comic-Con. <laughs> yeah, I think he said that before when they when they said, like, I want to do this movie. And hopefully yes. it's an homage to Spielberg. It's movies basically of a Spielberg movie. Have you seen Close Encounters in E.T.? Yeah. yeah. Just, like, get, like, a DJ and, like, remix those movies and you'll get pretty close to what I'm about to do. Yeah, he, he flat out said that uh, when they were announcing the project. But, like, the... I mean, like, I don't really have a problem with lens flares in this movie, but like, the, the the weird thing is, like, there's sort of like this frustrating disconnect because, like, in Close Encounters, the lens flares are very, very specifically about something extraordinary. Like, they are always a part of alien technology and some sort of revelation. And here, it's just like some lights are just too bright, man. But that's the way. It's I mean, cool. that's that's the way that movies of the era were. I mean, you look at like yeah. John Carpenter movies and. 
you know, John mm-hmm. McTiernan movies, and that's just the way that it was. And, right. And you, I love that. But there's a it's a useful artifact. But when you, when you don't use it to accomplish something, then you're just throwing lens flares uh, at the to, audience. To me. <laughs> okay, for the record, in terms of, you know, Star Trek collaborators and, and, and everything, there were a lot fewer in this than, than there were in Mission Impossible 3. Um, and the main one, which I, because I, I messed it up last week, I said that Dan Mindel had, had shot all of his movies, or Dan Mindel, I don't know how to pronounce his name. And Dan in, Mandelbrot. In, in fact, uh, Mindel did not shoot this movie. It was shot by Larry Fong, who uh, is primarily, I guess, Zack Snyder's cinematographer. So, um, But it was edited by Marianne Brandon, Mary Jo Markey, and um, Michael Giacchino, did the music and the creature was created by Neville Page, who you know, you can tell because he does uh, the same thing like all the time. Come on, man. So yeah. don't go do? there. Okay. So anyway, uh, John, any final thoughts on Super Eight? Yeah, uh, as much as I have fixated on some of the negatives, um, this is actually the movie that I went back to when he was announced as the director for uh, Episode Seven. Uh, of Star Wars, I specifically pointed back at this and said, if there's anybody I have faith of a, you know, of a big name director that is going to go back and make me feel like I'm watching something that was created by the same guy, by the same team that made the movies I watched growing up, it's Abrams. Like I have full faith because of Super 8 that, that he's going to be able to properly use the wipes and the, the 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 way that the worlds are constructed and the the way that things are lit, he's he's a chameleon, as as evidenced by this movie. Um, I think that what about the lens flares? Yeah, well, I I I do think that maybe he needs to go and make a few more of these original sorts of movies, so that he can start to form his own style instead of trying to imitate anybody else's uh, in any way. And because I, I feel that this is, you know, since this is his most original work, this one is, this one was a real opportunity to show what he could do and he showed he could imitate. But I want to see him make something completely his own. Something where I can look at it and say that doesn't, not that it looks like Spielberg, and not that it looks like an Apple store, like something that looks like him, something that I can point to and say, that looks like him. That, that's Abrams. Curly hair and everything. Yeah, curly hair and everything. Yeah. All right, what about you, Max? Um, I, you know, I've been, I've been bored by a lot of J.J. Abrams' works. Um, I, I couldn't finish Alias because it just became so incredibly tedious that I wanted to fast forward through entire episodes and um, I, I like I, I've seen every episode of Felicity and I wish I hadn't <laughs> really hard and um, I've seen all of his movies and and I can tell you that I, I am not I don't hate him I am I am usually bored and I'm waiting for somebody to tell him that he should not be making summer blockbusters. He should be making Oscar bait dramas because he would get Oscars for them because he's good at that and he's not good at climaxes. He's not good at action movies. He's not good at science fiction or fantasy. He's, he's actually really good at the really tiny small stuff. And the bigger the story is, the, the more small it feels. Okay. All right. Well, for me, um, I still do think that this is his his least good movie. While I do enjoy it, you know, the his o- most bad movie, <laughs> perhaps I, I I do enjoy it. But the the other ones I love. You know, this one I just like. And I, like today was the first time that I had seen it since it came out, and um, I had never really had a desire to go back and watch it prior to this. Um, I am kind of curious about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I was thinking about picking up the Blu-ray, but I didn't. So now because of that, I might not watch it again for um, a long time. Maybe until uh, Star Wars comes out, because uh, I am intrigued um, in the same way that you are, John. And and I do think that uh, he he will be able to capture that, that style. Um, and, and also at the same time, you know, figure out a way to make it his own. 
without making it stand out. Um, probably nearly as much as the prequels did. But regardless, um, I, I do I do think that it's a decent movie, and and I also do think that it's interesting how this is the one that he had written himself, and uh, I know that written is in quotation marks. Now. You know, I've seen a lot of uh, his TV stuff and and other things that he's written, and I, while I've enjoyed those, I, I kind of wonder if you know bringing in people like Kurtzman and Orsi as collaborators might uh, actually be beneficial to him as a director. And I'm very curious to see what uh, a collaboration between him and uh, Lawrence Kasdan will look like. So, so I guess that's my thoughts on Super 8. I'm waiting for him to stop diluting everything with his desire to make everything boring. Okay, Lost was not boring. But he no. didn't really do anything on that. Either. No, it wasn't boring. Uh, diehard Losty from beginning to end right here. That's that's his best thing. That's what he will always be known for. See, the funny thing about that is the basically that means that you were a fan of like five different shows. Yes. And and like at no point did you think, wow, what was the show when it started? Oh, there was a plane crash. And that was a magical cork in an island. Yeah. Okay, be, yeah, be, that's be careful with spoilers because I've still only seen season one of that show. So. I will, I, I will gladly ship my Blu-ray set to you so that I, you can watch them all. I've actually got the Blu-ray sitting right here just waiting to be watched. I just lost, haven't had the time. Lost is God hilarious. Man, what are you waiting for? Because if I told you the entire plot, you would think, that's stupid. The you just is, made all of that up. The thing and is, I, bite I, your t- I'm going to come, totally come through worked. this like, microphone. Have, have you guys, you're going to have words, man. Have you, guys seen, <laughs> have you guys seen This is 40? No. No. Okay, because in that movie... I'm not going to. Like throughout that (laughs) movie, um, Maude Apatow's character, the daughter, she's just watching. She's binge watching Lost throughout the entire movie, and then she gets to the end. This up a few times, and she basically ruins the ending of Lost in the movie. Yeah, and then then she becomes like very, very sort of like down, and and becomes sort of like a uh, um, a typical teenager. And then they start blaming J.J. Abrams for for her mood, and, and it's it's funny. But anyway, regardless. No, I blame ABC. Okay, so so regardless, uh, John, where can people find you on the internet? Well, they can find me on the internet on Twitter. Uh, it's I have a cozy little corner there at uh, Kessel Junkie K E S S E L J U N K I E, and they can also find me weekly on uh, a podcast called Words with Nerds, uh, available on Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean. And anywhere that uh, library books are sold at half price. All right. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us, as always. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. Indeed. Excellent. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you to that. Well, that was fun talking to John about Super 8, but that's not the only thing we're talking about here on Trek FM. So here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. <laughs> Everything that we do has to exist inside of this little box. This and, window, yeah, if you will. Right. And you can you can do whatever you want inside there, but once you step outside, you know, it's the real world. Earl Grey. That's, you know what I mean? And then Star Trek V is all about crapping all over the rest of the movies. That just came out. <laughs> Axonar, the official podcast. When you're in the edit bay, as soon as you put one image next to another, it's this instant gratification. It's this great creative jolt, which happens every time you start juxtaposing your images. And when you start seeing things fall into place, it's it's really galvanizing and it's really thrilling, actually. And I love feeding off that kind of, of energy. The ready room. Well, you know, time is not really linear, sure. So the monkey... He's always been there, and he always will be. (laughs) I take the Janeway stance on time travel. It gives me a headache. The Orb. Batman also creates a contingency plan for all the other superheroes, just in case something goes wrong with them. So So what does he do for the Wonder Twins, for example? Like, How is he going to take them out if... Um, I think he just separates them eternally so they can't smack their hands together. To the journey! We have like a whole bunch of geek aliens, like they're wearing their own superhero t-shirts, they're eating (laughs) Hot Pockets, they have headphones on, and they're all in their own little, you know, 24th century room, but they're like, dude, dude, I totally just pwned the Voyager. Commentary, Trek Stars.
and underlines the goal of Prexy Gail Berman to re-energize the pipeline while revitalizing the PAR brand with top-tier talent such as Abrams. I love Trace. You have no idea what you're saying at this point. Warp 5. He can put her mind at ease about these kinds of things because he can just, you know, you know how Trip is, like, let's, you know. Let's have some catfish and, like, just hang out. You know, <laughs> I was just thinking that. Continuing mission. We actually spoke with uh, CBS legal team, and uh, that was one of the things that we that we had told them, is that we, all of our visuals were all original scenes. All of our animation was going to be original. All of our music would be original. So we would not be stealing any content from the original era. Mm-hmm. And, and they liked that a lot. Literary treks. And I just love that because it is very true. You know, Picard in some ways kind of has that Yodaness about him where he will kind of speak in a riddle and he wants you to figure it out. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows to get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows podcast directory for Xbox and Zune, or you can stream them from the website. Just visit Trek.fm slash PD for podcast directory to get all the links. So we have some feedback this week. A some message. Feedback? The first time someone uh, sent us a message uh, through the Trek FM form, uh, which is kind of cool. This one is from Gene. He says... From G? Gene. Oh, Gene. Yeah, like Gene, Gene, the dancing machine. Or Roddenberry? Oh, really? that, there's that one too. Honestly? <laughs> really? That's your... What's, uh, what is wrong? Anyway... He says, it's not late enough for you to make that kind of weird. He, he says that he's in the JJ-verse. Uh, and he says, Hi, Mike and Max. Love the show. Big fan. I am looking for a little context and perspective. I would like Max to give some examples of movies that he likes and why he likes them. I think that will help me better understand Max's opinions about the movies that you review. Also, I was listening to your Damon Lindelof episodes, and I'm curious to know more about Max's opinion that Star Trek should die. I am intrigued. Also, also, thanks, Mike, for your Star Trek 2009 commentary. It was awesome. I am often puzzled by fan reactions to the 2009 film and appreciate the praise you gave it. All right, so so let's what start was off. What are talking about? Well, we'll get into that. Oh, did you do that thing? I did, you did it. I did it. When did you do that? Why? When? When? It, it came out right before we started our JJ thing, and I forgot to talk about it on here. But we'll talk about that in a second. Let's talk about your thing first. Mm. Okay, so this is a question which a lot of people ask, and, and I know the answer to this, but what are some movies that you like? Because like there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that you don't like. I like most movies. What are some movies that you think are good? There are not that many. Not that many. But Aliens... Sure, off the top of my head, I can think of a few movies, but they're all sort of like connected to what we've been recently talking about. I mean, it's like certainly, I mean, Die Hard, Star Trek Two, Aliens. Um, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Uh, sure. Um, Star Wars. Yeah, Episode Four, New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back. Sure. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm trying not to go down a particular path. I'm trying to okay. all spread right, go, it go, around, okay, not just go around. like, you know, Lucasfilm movies. Except for the Ewok Adventures. Here, here's a weird one. My Dinner with Andre, right? Big fan of My Dinner with Andre? No, no. This is the thing. I'm, not, okay. I'm just going to make a point of this, okay? I do not care about what I like. Okay. What I like has no bearing okay, on how okay, good okay. a movie what, is. What, and that's an important thing to understand with Max. And I find it very frustrating when people say, oh, I really like that movie. It's really good. Okay. So movies that you think There's are good. There's a fundamental difference between what you like and what is good. Movies that you think are good. I'm only talking about movies that I think are okay. good. Okay, all right. And and I would include movies that I don't even particularly like. Godfather movies is a good example of that. So Those are mainly the, the biggest example because they're like as good as how much I hate them. Okay. But as as someone who, who has known you for the past decade or whatever, I mean, I would say that, that, that the movies which I hear you come back to again and again are things like Aliens, Shaun of the Dead, Raiders of the Lost Ark... Die Hard. Those are like the big ones to me. Well, I would say I would say I go back to Aliens on a regular basis. Yeah, as an example, because like what what is good about Aliens is actually very informative about like the nature of like quality storytelling, and especially when you're dealing with a franchise. Yeah. And we're usually talking about franchises and sequels and stuff, and 
Aliens is probably the best example of somebody coming into a franchise, bringing in new life without breaking anything, and in fact enhancing it significantly. I cannot think of a better example of that. Mm-hmm. And like it, you know, James Cameron did that with Aliens, and like he actually also did it with Terminator Two. Different situation because yeah. he kind of started it, but like there's there's a lot to be learned there about what it is that you're doing when you're making a thing in a franchise. And James Cameron seemed to have a handle on it that nobody else seemed to. It seemed like many franchises either lived or died or succeeded or failed and front and sequels would, would come and go. And the ones that would stay were sort of, um, chance. It was, it was sort of like, like luck of the draw, but Cameron actually like spelled out exactly what you do. You enhance it. You change the thing that came before but you don't break it. Yeah. And when when you when you think about that, you can actually figure out why so many people get it wrong. Mm-hmm. They break the thing that came before, like Alien Three. Yeah. Or Star Wars prequels. Okay. So or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Deal with it. <laughs> deal with it. Deal with it. Okay. Deal so with so, it. so moving on moving on to the Just next deal thing. With it. About uh, um, why you think Star Trek should die? I, I think, don't know what that's about. I mean, I, I I I would assume I don't remember the context in which you said this, but I would assume that it's similar to what you've been talking about um, with uh, well, in regards to let's say Star Wars recently on our other show, mm-hmm. Off Topic, where you're talking about franchises which are you know no longer being made because there's something to add to the story, but they're being made because it's a franchise, and there's money to be had. Yeah, I think that's a significant problem. I mean, it's essentially like any time something becomes um, a valuable commodity, essentially the people with resources to control it take control of it, and whatever it was is lost. I mean, it's sort of a an anarchic concept. I mean, like it's it's sort of it's sort of what happens with anything that is that experiences a kind of success that is largely um, defiant in nature. I mean, punk rock was sort of the exact same thing. It's it was defined by being essentially revolutionary. It's it's throwing out the, the rules, being something new, and you give them enough time, and the people with the power will eventually turn it into something that they can use. Mm-hmm. And that's just how it goes. And generally speaking, like, everything works this way. Every franchise that goes for long enough eventually becomes something that people use to increase their power. Like religion. In the entirety of human history. It starts as a revolution. And then it becomes the thing that everyone agrees on. And then the people with the resources to control it take control of it. And it's no longer a thing that makes anything good. It becomes a, It becomes essentially... A, a meaningless property that is used primarily to control things, and Star Trek hit that, yeah, in two thousand nine, and it was largely because they said Star Trek was a series that, on a regular basis, said to its audience, "You're wrong, and we don't like a lot of things about you." If we got rid of that, it would be really good for money. Okay. We could make a lot more money if we stopped saying the audience that they were doing things wrong. One of the nicest things about the original series and the Twilight Zone was that they, on a regular basis, said to their audience, you are bad. Here are some things we don't like about you. Please change them. Get back to us. Like, maybe email, text, don't call. We have weird hours. <laughs> All right. So, uh, hopefully that, that's clear. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but then again, I've, you know, kind of heard this numerous times over the past I, but decade I, or so. I find it strange that people don't think about this on a regular basis, because it's sort of like, it is everything. Everything works this way. Like, literally every time, like, something becomes profitable, it gets controlled by people who use it entirely to increase their power. And it's the exact same thing with... I mean, it's oil, you know? It's, it's anything that, that gives somebody power, it will eventually land in the possession of one group or an individual, and it will become primarily a tool of destruction. Okay. And I think Star Trek has, in 2009, they pulled out all the things about it that alienated people, like the whole thing of saying, we don't like some things about you. Some people found that alienating. When you pull that out... 
you end up with a very powerful tool of destruction. Of course, it wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be something good, because Star Trek is the Genesis device, and Paramount is calm. <laughs> okay, well, I don't necessarily agree with that analysis. While I see what you're saying, I don't agree that that applies to Star Trek, but I won't get into that now. What I will say is that, yes, you can go and listen to my commentary for 2009 Star Trek, which uh, can be found in the master feed right here on Trek.fm. I I did this, my goal was, uh, you know, I I oftentimes talk about how I think Star Trek 2009 is the, the, the best of the franchise, and people always look at me like I'm crazy for saying that, which is fine, but that doesn't happen uh, with, like, really anything else. Like, people who say that Voyager is their favorite or people who say that Enterprise is their favorite, they just, people, you know, just say, like, oh, that's interesting. I don't say that. Well, I know, but you're the exception to the rule here. You know, most people, you'll always find people will be like, oh, I can understand that. I can see where you're coming from. I don't agree with it, but I see where you're coming from. But with me and Star Trek... That's true with me and, like... Next gen and original series. Okay, but but for me with those are the only ones with Star Trek two thousand and nine, <laughs> you know I, I'm like uh, you know I think that this is my favorite, and people are just like what? Like have you seen other Star Trek? I don't understand. So I I may I, I did this commentary to just kind of explain that yes I have thought this through, and you know I, I'm not I wasn't trying to change anyone's mind. I was just trying to say this is why I think this, and I have thought about it, and I do see the flaws. And, you know, putting all that together, I do think that this is my favorite Star Trek movie. And my goal was to release this prior to us doing the J.J. Abrams series so that it didn't become a thing that I had to explain all the time with this series. And I was expecting to get a lot of backlash for it, honestly. And I've gotten nothing but positive feedback, you know, even from people who don't agree with me. And I really do appreciate that, you know. So thanks for listening, Gene. Uh, I do appreciate it. And thanks to everyone else who's listened to it, too. And if you do want to hear it, uh, it's in the in the master feed. It does get a little slow at the end because it's really freaking hard to talk to yourself for over two hours. But I tried. Not as you do different voices. I should have done that. Next time, next time. I like I I'm I'm I hate I hate the situation that you put me in whenever you're talking about this because I hate being on your side when you're wrong. <laughs> okay. Because they're wrong for why they hate it. Okay. It's bad the way almost everything is. Okay. It's just not good. Okay. Anyway, um, thanks. Like for, Voyager. Okay. Anyway, Deal thank, with it. thanks for sending the feedback, Gene. We, we really do appreciate it. And uh, if you want to send us feedback please do so. You can do it like Gene did by finding the little button on uh, Trek FM, or you can just email us at comtrackstars at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter at comtrackstars, or you could po- post a review on iTunes for us, which would actually be uh, greatly beneficial to us. Uh, you can do that just like Aslan16 did. That's a Lord of the Rings reference? Aslan? Aslan? No, no, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's Chronicles a, of Narnia. Yeah. Ah, whatever, same thing. No, no, <laughs> no. That's, <laughs> that's, that is so inexcusable. That's like saying that Star Trek 2009 is the best in the series. Okay, all right. Anyway, Aslan 16. One of these days I end up getting around to building hell. <laughs> okay. I'll put your name on the list. Anyway, Aslan 16 says, Setting the track record on Trek stars. It's always fascinating to find out what Trek people have done outside of Trek. I can't thank Mike and Max enough for all the work they must put into this excellent show. Each podcast episode is a great and informative listen. Whether you're a Star Trek fan or just want to learn more about writers, directors, etc. in TV and film, this podcast is for you. Thank you very much, Aslan16. We really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, those, those... iTunes reviews do help us with um, getting seen by more people, I guess. So, so, so thanks. Indeed. Thank you. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary Trek stars to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is audible.com. 
Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week from classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Spock's World. Audible has something for everyone. They've even got Steven Spielberg, a biography. If you want to know about the producer of Super 8 and the guy who inspired everything in the movie, check out this book. It's written by Joseph McBride. It's narrated by Edward Lewis. And it says, The most successful director in movie history, Steven Spielberg, has been responsible for such box office blockbusters as Jurassic Park, Jaws, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and the Indiana Jones Trilogy. Or, or quadrilogy. Uh, also, all the bad movies he made afterwards. And yet, throughout much of his career, Spielberg Spielberg's work has been undervalued by critics who have questioned his emotional maturity and intellectual seriousness. It was not until he made Schindler's List in 1993 that he was widely recognized as a serious filmmaker. The end. Until now. Oh, too bad. Much about Spielberg's personality and the forces that shaped it has remained enigmatic, in large part because of his tendency to obscure and mythologize his own past. In this full-scale, in-depth biography, Joseph McBride reveals hidden dimensions to the filmmaker's personality and explains how deeply personal even his most commercial work has been. With the same breadth of research and clarity of insight that characterized his acclaimed biography of Frank Capra, McBride has gone in search of the true Steven Spielberg, interviewing more than 300 of the director's friends and associates, many of whom had never spoken about him before. And this was written in 1997, so it'll be an interesting perspective. And you can get it for free since you listen to Trek FM. At this point in the history of America... Jurassic Park still has no bad movies in its series. Uh, well, Except yeah. for maybe the first well, one. Well, it still hasn't, but yeah. Sort of the first one. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting commentary, Trek Stars, and Trek FM. And lastly... There's one more way you can directly help us keep commentary Trek stars coming to you each week, and that's by adopting some aliens. Well, illustrations anyway. If you go to trek.fm slash donate, you'll find eight original alien illustrations by Toba Ushi, who does most of the artwork you see on our website. They're available as both badges and art prints, and there are different contribution levels for you to choose from. Just let us know which you would like and in which format. Again, you'll find them at trek.fm slash donate, and your support helps us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring you the show each week. They don't have any... uh, Cloverfield aliens or any ETs, but you know, or Canadians. They don't have Canadians either, um, but they do have Romulans. So there's that. Same thing. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for uh, Super Eight, and we will be back next week to recap our look at J.J. Abrams as a director. 